Before we start today's podcast, the Truth About Aging wish to acknowledge that this episode has been recorded on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. We pay our deepest respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge the Ghana people as the custodians of the Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are still as important to the living Ghana people today. everyone and welcome to the Truth About Aging podcast. I'm your host, Kate Helmore. Each week we'll be unpacking your questions about the aged care sector, discussing how to age well, grow old and make informed decisions. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Truth About Aging podcast. I hope you are all doing really well. Apologies for the slightly rusky voice and potentially the small sick child you might hear on my lap every now and then, but she's staying pretty quiet at the moment. (laughs) We've had an interesting, an interesting time. It's been a little while between episodes because things have been pretty busy. I definitely underestimated the ability to put these out weekly with a tiny human, but that's okay because we're doing them as frequently as I can. In this week's episode, I have the beautiful social worker Tamara. It's actually an episode we recorded a little while back, all about what happens when you don't have future planning documents in place. Now, if you're not sure what future planning documents are or what that looks like, I recommend you go back to episode 19, where I talk all about advanced care planning. That talks about what the documents are, what's helpful to have set up, what's involved with setting those up. So that's probably a good place to start if you're not sure. But in today's episode, we talk a little bit about what happens if they aren't there. So this includes things like the Office of the Public Advocate or OPA, the Public Trustee, and also the Civil and Administrative Tribunal, which in South Australia is SACAT. Queensland, it's QCAT. In Victoria, it's VCAT. It has a whole bunch of different names. But we talk a little bit about those different systems and when they would be accessed. So I really hope you take something from today's episode, particularly if you're someone that finds themselves looking after a neighbor or a loved one that doesn't have these formal documents set up. It's really, really helpful to know what that might mean down the track, what you can do to prevent getting to a crisis, and if you do get to a crisis point, what the options are from there. I hope you enjoy. We might shuffle on into kind of, would you call it legal systems and supports? I don't really, I was trying to think of a broad category for all your public trustee, office of the public advocate, civil and administrative tribunal. What what would be your broad umbrella term for those? Um, so I guess it is around future planning, but what happens when you don't have future planning documents in place? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good um, point. And, and getting those sorts of things in place for somebody who is vulnerable. Yeah. I think that makes sense. There's just, there's so many things that they all cover. I find it hard to kind of succinctly pull it all together, but we will do our best to unpack some of that today. So let's start with public trustee. Can you explain a little bit about the role of the public trustee and what they, what they do? Yeah. So the public trustee has a number of roles, but I guess in general terms, 
they are financial administrators, so mm-hmm. they can be appointed to support people's financial um, and legal decision-making if someone isn't able to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, people can choose to have public trustee as their administrators if they have capacity to do so and aren't able to manage their finances. Mm-hmm. Um, but most generally they're appointed as an administrator when somebody doesn't have anyone else to do that, that for them and they've lost capacity to do it themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think we'll probably see there'll be a lot of parallels between some of these. And I guess what I might actually just pull apart there, because I think this will come up a lot, is can you just define capacity and what it means for someone to have capacity? Because I think that's probably going to come out a lot in the different things that we discuss in this area. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I guess legal capacity is the ability to make your own decisions in a clear and precise way to understand information that's given to you and make good choices for yourself based on that information. Mm-hmm. So if someone doesn't have capacity, it could be for reasons such as intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be because somebody has um, had a stroke and, and has a brain injury or any other sort of brain injury. Mm-hmm. Or it could be because somebody has dementia and has lost the ability to understand complex information and make clear good decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. And do, are there, from what I understand, there's some mental illnesses that can kind of sit under that as well if people have certain behaviours around, you know, it might be schizophrenia or bipolar or some of those more complex mental health issues that impair their ability to make sound decisions as well. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So in the older people, we generally see less of that and more of, of the other sort of cognitive uh-huh. changes. But absolutely, if someone has bipolar, especially bipolar one, and is having a manic episode and maybe isn't able to think clearly for themselves, um, mm-hmm. they might need an administrator to be appointed for a short period of time while their behaviour is unpredictable and and then it might be reviewed. And if that person stabilises through medication or treatment, then it might be revoked. Uh-huh, yeah. So, and I think that's a good point in there that, so if you, if you have someone appointed as your administrator through the public trustee, that doesn't have to be a, a permanent role that they play necessarily. That's correct, yeah. So it depends on what the condition is as to how long the decision would be made for. So if it's through SACAT, for example, um, order is generally reviewed at a minimum three months and a maximum of three years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's different different kind of timeframes on that, but they do review it over time to make sure that it's yeah, still relevant and, it- and still required. Exactly. And if somebody, um, I guess, comes along, a family member or a friend who says that they're actually willing to take on that role as administrator, they can actually apply for a review of any orders made and ask to, to take on that role themselves mm-hmm. um, if, okay. they're, if they're suitable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good caveat on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you just mentioned say cat then. And I did, to be honest, I, before this episode, I did have to have a look cause I wasn't sure what it was in other States, but it looks like it's pretty much say cat, V cat, Q cat, N cat. It's just yeah, whatever state yeah. you're in with the letter. But anyway, basically the, the civil and administrative tribunal, so what's yeah. the role of, of that group and what do they do in terms of um, appointing administrators and things like that? So if somebody identifies a need for somebody to have a decision maker in place, so if there's no injuring power of attorney, if there's no 
enduring power of guardianship, as it used to be called prior to 2014, or if there's no advanced care directives in place, but somebody has a loss of capacity for any any of the reasons we've discussed, it might be that an application is made to the Civil and Administrative Tribunal to actually appoint somebody. Mm-hmm. So it could be that a family member is the applicant and they they would like to take on that role. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, any, if the informal supports are working correctly, SACAP won't make a decision. Mm-hmm. They'll allow informal supports to continue. But if formal decisions need to be made and the person isn't agreeable, so if say if they're not taking their medication, they're not accepting in-home services that, and, and that's putting them at risk, Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a decision to be made about where they live so that they might be very frail, malnourished, unable to care for themselves at home, have advanced dementia and they might need residential care, if that person doesn't have somebody appointed to make those decisions for them, you would apply to SACAT to have someone appointed. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's essentially it's not a court, it's a tribunal, so they're not. Mm-hmm. it's not a um, it's a little bit more uh, less informal, I guess, than a court. Mm-hmm. Um, but their job is to still consider um, medical evidence that there is a loss of capacity and that the person isn't able to make decisions for themselves. And then it's their job to determine who the best person is to make those decisions for the for the vulnerable person. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth people being aware of. These can, as you said, so families can apply, can go to say cat and request certain I guess powers that orders they would be yeah. orders. Yep, <laughs> that they would be yeah. looking after. But that yeah. it can also be done. You know, it can be initiated by, say, a social worker in the hospital, or through Correct. potentially even through your home care provider. Well, social normally a social worker through the home care provider as well. Is there? What are the? I guess the main ways you see people get referred to to say CAT or any of the tribunals. So if the if the vulnerable person, um, we'll just use that term as, a, as mm-hmm. an easy term to use, but the vulnerable person has a supportive family, quite often um, as a social worker I would support them to be the applicants in the matter. Yeah. If they were making good decisions and very caring and supportive of the person and they were deemed to be fit, I guess, to become a decision maker or administrator mm-hmm. um, or both potentially, we would support them to actually to do an application. An application to SACAT involves getting a, a specific SACAT medical and psychological report form filled out by a GP or a geriatrician or other medical specialist, psychologist, psychiatrist, mm-hmm. um, outlining the person's diagnosis, how severe the diagnosis is and whether it's um, stable, fluctuating, deteriorating, and whether they can make decisions around you know, day-to-day things like their home care services, where they live, Um, whether they're able to actually manage their own finances, uh, complex Mm -hmm. financial decision-making or simple decision-making, like they might not be able to make a decision around, you know, taking out a loan or selling a house, but they might be able to still go to the shop and purchase something on their card. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't, it's it's not all or nothing. Absolutely. So everybody's situation is going to be different, but it's up to the person who signs off on that report to give the tribunal a really clear description of, where the person's capacity is at and so they can identify the need. Yeah, yeah. And I think I just want to touch on there because I think something that I've seen probably on both ends of the spectrum are sometimes Mm -hmm. families um, wanting to put themselves forward to take on those duties but 
not fully understanding or appreciating how much is involved in that and the actual responsibility that it entails. And sometimes I get, well, sometimes families are aware and they say, look, as much as we would love to do that for mum or dad, it's not something we can take on. And other times, you know, it might be something that they'll freely say, yep, I'll, give, I'll look after all of that. And then mm-hmm. there can be some challenges down the road where maybe they didn't quite anticipate how much is involved in that. Can you yeah. speak to that at all and what, what families should consider before taking on those roles? So I think the first thing to think about is family dynamic, I think. So mm-hmm. if is one person wanting to take on that role or are multiple people wanting to take on that role? And if so, what what are their relationships like? Mm-hmm. Quite often there's family members who see things very differently and it can cause conflict around decision-making if people don't see eye-to-eye on what is best for mum or dad. Mm-hmm. So I think the first thing to do is, is identify what is that dynamic like and is it going to have any impact on the decisions that you make? Yeah. The second thing would be, you know, do you have the time and resources to invest in doing things like keeping track of all the financials, making sure the bills are paid, if you're nominated by SACAT as a financial administrator, which would be in lieu of a enduring power of attorney, mm-hmm. you actually have to report all assets within 28 days to the public trustee and you have to keep very, very clear records on every single cent that you spend on behalf of your loved one. Uh-huh. So, you know, you might want to think about do you have the skills to do that? Do you mm-hmm. have the time to do that? Um, how complex are their finances? Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of other decision making, so particularly around where will my loved one live, mm. the thing that families quite often struggle with is if their loved one maybe needs higher level of care, like residential care, and they know that their loved one wouldn't want to go into a residential care facility necessarily, mm. and having to make that decision that they know that their loved one wouldn't like and I guess how they feel about doing that. Yeah, I I think that's such a big one to touch on because I know sometimes just the emotional weight of those decisions can be mm, a lot to carry. Absolutely. And when you take on the role of either administrator or substitute decision maker, what you have to remember is that all of your decisions need to be in the best interest of the person that you're making them for. Mm -hmm. So if that person's really unsafe living at home and residential care is the best option for them, you have to be willing and able to make that decision. And and it is such a tough decision for a lot of families. Yeah. And I I think that's the bit that's most commonly underestimated because it it is, you know, taking on that role can often feel like it makes sense. I can do this. I'm happy to help out and I can Mm. make these decisions for mum or for dad or for whoever it is. But I think sometimes when it gets to that real crunch point of having to make those decisions, it's a it's a huge toll as well and really quite a big responsibility to weigh up. And I think there's also Absolutely. no shame in putting your hand up and saying, actually, you know what, I don't have the I don't feel confident that I'd be able to do that, or I don't have the time to actually be able to commit to these things because yeah, I think it's worth be having some time to reflect on whether you're able to take on that responsibility before you very quickly jump out and go, yep, I'm happy to take that. I'll, I'll look after all of that because it can be a, a huge, huge role. 
Absolutely. Um, and then there's there's different ways of, of having people appointed. So it might be one person's appointed. It might be multiple children or family members are appointed mm-hmm. and they could be appointed jointly and severally mm-hmm. or jointly. So yeah. if it's jointly, it means that all decisions have to be made together. So is everyone available? Are they all living in the same state? Mm-hmm. Um, are they all able to be present to put signatures on contracts for nursing homes and things like that if need be? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots and lots of things to think about in terms of uh, how the orders are made and what works best for the family. Mm-hmm. And who would help guide a family through that decision-making if they were feeling they needed some guidance around who should be best appointed or whether it would be best doing a joint appointment with siblings? What would be the best place for people to go to ask those questions? I think that the best person to ask would be a social worker or yeah. a person, if you have one, that understands the system. Mm-hmm. Um, the Office of the Public Advocate can give some general advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also places like the Catalyst Foundation, which uh, used to be called Seniors Information Service, mm-hmm. and they do have people that you can ring up and ask for advice from as well. Yeah. It's also really important to make sure that anyone who does want to take on a role actually meet the criteria. So if you've been bankrupt, you're not allowed to become a financial administrator. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's making sure that you actually meet the legal requirements of the yep. role before you yep. kind of put your hand up and say, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and you just mentioned there the Office of the Public Advocate. And without trying to, I think we'll, we'll summarise all of them in a minute because it is confusing between all yeah. of it, but what, what does the Office of the Public Advocate do? So the Office of the Public Advocate is essentially what's known as a guardian of last resort. Mm-hmm. And so they're a government organisation or department that actually take on guardianship roles for people who have no other option. Mm-hmm. So that might be in situations where, the person's being cared for by somebody and that person might have been abusing them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, then SACAP might say, well, we want to safeguard this person, so we're going to nominate the Office of the Public Advocate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes SACAP will put the Office of the Public Advocate and a family member as joint guardians just as mm-hmm. a safeguard to make sure that all decisions are actually in the person's best interest. Yeah. Could be, and we're seeing more and more of this as as we're, um, I guess, coming a lot through a lot more people that maybe haven't had families and or estranged from their families. Mm. Um, the Office of the Public Advocate quite often takes on that guardianship role when somebody doesn't have anybody, yeah, who is able to take on the role of substitute decision maker. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth people being aware of too, as you said there, that it is a guardian of last resort. It's not. Um, their intention is never to take powers away from families or other supports and put someone else in charge of making decisions. That is probably the last thing they want. And if anything, it's really Absolutely. quite a process to prove why that's required. That if if that ever is something that's discussed, I think it's because it, there normally is a there's a real necessity behind why that's being considered because they would always prefer for people to have their own supports in place where possible. Absolutely. So it would only be in in cases, like I said, where there, they, there is no family or friends that would be willing to take on that role or, you know, the person quite often might just not have anybody. 
mm-hmm. um, or there is indications of abuse, but they would have to be proven to the tribunal. So the yeah. tribunal would have to assess evidence put to, towards the tribunal that there was enough risk that they wouldn't nominate a family member to be the decision maker. Mm-hmm. And so let's say that someone was in an informal support for a vulnerable individual. So it might be maybe a neighbour mm-hmm. that had been informally providing support and had realised it had got to the point where they were needing more complex help that the neighbour wasn't willing to take the responsibility of. What would be the kind of referral process or how would they best connect people with, you know, the say CAD or get them into that kind of system? Yeah, so if the person's in receipt of home care services, you could talk to their home care provider and they Mm -hmm. should have pathways available to them through social workers to support the the neighbour or the friend or the family member with that process. If not, definitely contact those other organisations that I mentioned before and get some advice about what the best thing to do is. Um, Quite often, um, SACATs will be triggered by either older person's mental health or mm-hmm. through a hospital admission where they've identified that there is no decision maker in place and that one is needed. Yeah. Can they be triggered by a GP? Um, or typically not so much? Typically not so much. I mean, technically anybody can take an application to SACAP. Yeah. But GPs generally don't. They might provide the medical report. But mm-hmm. if they had concerns, they would generally reach out to family or to the home care provider or somebody involved in that person's care yeah, and get that organisation to support the person. Yeah, okay. No, that makes sense. So mm. I guess to kind of try summarise some of those because it is, it is a complex yeah, system, a but yeah. you kind of got your, and I'll try for our listeners because they're we're not all in SA, but so we've got our SACAT, VCAT, QCAT, whatever you're called, but the, the Civil Administrative Tribunal, which... Yep. A kind of, I guess, the, I don't know, would they be the kind of, I guess, overarching ones that then make the decisions as to who the ongoing decision makers will be? So then they, they can kind of refer through to your public trustee for financial administration or Office of the Public Advocate if that person needs a guardian and none of their informal supports are able to provide that or they don't have family members available for that. Correct, yeah. So the Civil Administrative Tribunal in all states is that decision maker um, and like I said, there is a process. Uh, I haven't undertaken the process in the other states, so I can only speak to South Australia. Uh-huh. Uh, the process is an online application, uploading a medical report form, which has been filled out by the GP specialist, psychologist, psychiatrist, or whomever the vulnerable person has had regular contact with and knows them well enough. Mm-hmm. And then a normally a hearing date is set. And at the moment, because of COVID, they're mostly done by telephone, but yeah. historically they were done in the SACAT tribunal offices. And on that day, they do ask the vulnerable person who they would like to be their decision maker. Mm-hmm. Um, they will talk to family or whoever is present, the applicant, um, and gather all the information and then make decisions based on that information. Yeah, beautiful. Anything else in that kind of area that you think would be helpful for people to know? I just think that, you know, having advanced care directives and enduring power of attorneys in place so you don't have to go to SACAT is pretty important. So That's such a good if point, you yeah. A loved, yeah, so if you have a loved one that may be recently diagnosed with dementia but still has capacity and they don't have those documents in place, it's a really good time to actually move on getting those done. Mm-hmm. Um 
no one really wants to go to a tribunal unless they absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. It's quite a stressful process if you have to go through sort of proving all of these things and working out who the decision maker is going to be. If your loved one can actually nominate that themselves while they have capacity, that would always be the preference. Yeah, that's such a good point because I think that forward planning is the biggest kind of preventative thing that you can avoid these systems entirely if they're if you're able to work through that with your loved ones and get those documents in place which mm. I think for some people you know it often is something that we put off and we put off and we put off but it really does help to have those already set up so that you avoid any of these kind of crisis situations where then you need to have you know have government bodies involved with actually setting those decision makers in place. Definitely. And, you know, it's also worthwhile pointing out, I think, in terms of advanced care directives, if you are listening to this and you think, I don't have anyone that I want to appoint as a substitute decision maker, you can actually complete an advanced care directive not nominating a decision maker, Mm -hmm. but still outlining what your wishes are so that if medical staff um, ever need to support decision making, they actually know what you want. Yeah. Um, So even if you don't have somebody, you know, get your wishes recorded. Yeah, absolutely, because I think that can be so important down the track where you might not be able to express that or able to communicate that effectively that if you've got that all set up and all approved and done beforehand, it can really go a long way when you really need it. Absolutely, and if Oprah ever did have to be that decision maker of last resort, then they can always refer to that advanced care directive around to support their decision making as well. Yes. So um, really, really important, have your wishes recorded. Yep. Beautiful. No, I think that's a a good point to wrap that one with. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you want to hear more from Tamara, you can find her business, Adelaide Hills Counseling and Consultancy at adelaidehillscc.com. It has all of her contact information on there. She does a really wide variety of work, but particularly in counseling and aged care placement services. Uh, She is an absolute wealth of knowledge, and I'm sure she would be more than happy to chat with you about some ways that she might be able to help you and your loved ones. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye.